Welcome to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a Presbyterian USA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more information about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children, youth, and adults at ndpc.org. And you can follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come and join us in person. That's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. Today we're going to meet one of the Bible's great heroes. But before I tell the story, I want to connect the dots from last week's story of Joshua to this week's story about King David. When we left Joshua, Joshua had led the people into the promised land. But the people were still not keeping God's law. They were not meeting the one condition that God had set for them to keep and hold the land that God had given. In the book of Judges, the people's well-being moves up and down like a yo-yo, rising and falling according to their obedience, sometimes good, sometimes not so good to God, and also according to the faithfulness of the local leaders who were called judges. So by the time we get to First and Second Samuel, God's people are sick and tired of spotty and inconsistent leadership. Imagine the people of Israel being stuck with a leadership system where you have to wait and just trust that God is going to pick from among the regular people among you the people that are called to lead. Wait a minute, that's, that's our Presbyterian system of leadership. But anyway, the people were frustrated. And the people were also scared. They were scared that if they didn't get stronger, they were going to be sacked by their rivals. Maybe they think, they think if we ditch this, this communitarian, cooperative way of living that we have, if we centralize all of our power and resources into one great, really strong dude, then we're going to be okay. The people of God demand a king to make Israel great. Now, David is not their first king. Saul is their first king. He's a central casting king. He's a strong, big strapping guy. But in a very strange plot twist, God withdraws favor from Saul simply because Saul shows the tiniest sliver of mercy to Israel's sworn enemies. It's bizarre, but Saul ends up on the outs and God goes looking for a new king. So God tells the judge, Samuel, go to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is as far as you can go, physically and culturally, from the town where Saul was from. So God says, go to the ends of the earth, and there you will find our next ruler. So Samuel gets to Bethlehem and starts sizing up all the local boys. Unfortunately, not the girls, right? But Saul's looking at all the boys, and especially Jesse's eight sons. The first one of Jesse's, the oldest one of Jesse's sons, Eliab, is a big guy. But the Lord says to Samuel, don't look at his appearance. Don't look at his height, Samuel. I've already rejected this son. Because God does not see as mortals see. Mortals look at the outward appearance, God says. But I look on the heart. That's a theme that's going to come up again and again throughout this whole story of King David. This story of the quality of his heart. One by one. Six more of Jesse's sons are trotted out for Samuel. Nope, 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 nah, nope, nope, not this one. And Samuel asked Jesse then, are all of your sons here? And Jesse says, well, the youngest son, he's not here, but he's out keeping the sheep. Samuel says, go get him. And nobody sits down until...
until that boy arrives. Well, David arrives, and now we know, we've already heard that, that God looks at the heart of leaders first, but it just so happens the Bible also describes David as one sexy hunk of a man. God says to Samuel, this, this is the one about David. And scripture says, the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. A heart for God and the spirit of God was with David. So the next thing you know, King Saul is depressed and he needs the country's best lyre player to come and play for him, to cheer him up. And guess who's awesome on the lyre, right? David. And so David moves into King Saul's house and he becomes the king's armor bearer. Now this is all background. It's all crucial background for today's best story ever. Now here it is. When the Israelites were afraid of what was going to happen, that what was... They were afraid of what was going to happen most, that one of the neighboring tribes was going to rise up and, and, and threaten them. And that is exactly what happened after David moved into Saul's house. The Philistines, a powerful neighboring tribe, threatened to attack them. So Saul assembles his troops and he leads them out to the battlefront. The Philistines are there on the hill on one side and the Israelites are standing there on the hill on the other side. And from the ranks of the Philistine troops, a warrior, Goliath, emerges Goliath is a monster, right? He's 10 feet tall. He's got bronze armor and a bronze helmet and a bronze spear in his hand. So this giant man strides out and stands there to taunt God's people. He says, listen. I sometimes imagine Arnold Schwarzenegger's voice, right? Listen, we are going to fight today, but not all of us. One on one, Goliath says, send out your best warrior." I will fight him, and if he wins, we will serve you. If I win, you will serve us. So the Israelites at this point look at Goliath, and they are freaking out. They hide. They hide. Nobody wants a piece of Goliath. Forty days this ritual goes on. Goliath comes out. He taunts the Israelites. They, they're scared. They hide. So one day, David arrives on the battlefield, I kid you not, bringing cheese, a man after my own heart, bringing cheese to his brothers on the battlefield. And he's there just in time for Goliath to come out and do his daily ritual, his daily taunting. And David sees this and says, who is this guy? Isn't one of us going to stand up and do something about him? David's brother says, pipe down, little dude, don't make a scene here. So Saul calls David, David to see him, and David says to the king, listen, I can do it. I can take down this Philistine. Now the king tells David he's being stupid. But David says, listen, when I'm out caring for the sheep, I kill lions and bears with my bare hands. I can take this guy. God will be with me. Saul reluctantly agrees, probably thinking David's about to be sent into a Cuisinart. Saul tries to give David his armor to protect him, but David refuses even the armor. All he takes out to fight Goliath are his shepherd's staff, five smooth stones in a bag, and his slingshot. So Goliath looks, and he sees this little boy approaching him on the battlefield, and he's insulted. He's, he's like, I'm going to feed you to the birds. And David says, come at me with your fancy weapons. I've got God on my side. We'll see who is more powerful, Goliath. I will cut you down this very day. Well, by that time, Goliath is done talking. He charges at David, and David calmly reaches into his bag, takes one smooth stone out, 
puts it in the slingshot. Bang! As the 10-foot warrior charges, David hits him right between the eyes. And Goliath falls down on the battlefield dead. Well, the Bible says the Israelites routed the Philistines that day. It will take a little more time and a lot more intrigue, but David will eventually assume the throne of Israel. And he is still remembered, even to this day, as the greatest of all Israel's kings. He unifies the 12 tribes of Israel. He supposedly even writes down the Psalms while he is the king. But those who take time to read David's story in the scriptures, the whole story, will see both a great and a deeply flawed human being. He is covetous, and he is callous, and he is complacent. After his death, the kingdom of David declines, and that decline brings suffering and grief to God's people. And so at the end of the story, you're left to wonder, were the people of God better off with King David than they would have been with no king at all? This is, in a nutshell, the story of David. It is the best story ever. Now, I, uh, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial when I say that America is enduring a profound leadership crisis right now. The stresses and demands of our current moment have overwhelmed our arrogant and incompetent president. Leadership matters. And it matters in organizations of every shape and every size, in churches and in state houses, in county commissions and in neighborhood associations. Poor leadership hurts people. As a culture, we spend far more time than we probably should thinking and talking about leadership. Any of you who have ever read a John Maxwell book, John Maxwell is a Florida pastor who writes these best-selling leadership books, you know that there's a whole industry out there, how to teach people to be great leaders, or at least adequate leaders. And there's value, I think, in teaching some of these leadership skills and attitudes that will help people when they function in organizations. But one thing that the David story underscores is that leaders are never separable from their followers. Great leaders, if there even is such a thing, are made by great followers. Bad leaders embody the flaws of the people who made them their leaders. Leadership, I think, is not something that happens in an individual and flows from that person into the community. It's exactly the opposite. Leadership is a manifestation of the will and the values of the community. And they flow from that community into and through an individual at a certain moment. Yes, David does have a strong character. He's a decent guy, and he's got some admirable qualities, but he's no stronger in character than God's people are. We see this in the chapters leading up to David's anointing and to his defeat of Goliath, and in the stories about his accomplishments and his ultimate failures as a king. There's a deep hesitancy, even an ambivalence, uh, about whether the people want or need a king to lead them at all. So when they finally get a king, fine, he's, he's good with a slingshot. Yes, he's keen on the lyre. Yes, he loves God some of the time. And yes, under, God, under David's kingship, there are even a few fleeting moments where Israel achieves a kind of national greatness. 
But even David, with his heart for God, cannot guarantee the success of the nation and of the people. When things go wrong, and they do go wrong, when we are afraid, we think we need better leaders who are going to come in and fix it for us. But how long do we watch our leaders fail before we just stop and say, leaders cannot be any better than we are. Leaders can't get better unless we do. Do we ever see our leaders as simply an expression of ourselves? When we Americans keep pretending that our corrupt political culture is going to somehow produce a great president, we're wrong. It's time to stop buying into the great man or even the great woman theory of leadership. It's time for each of you to find in yourself the characteristics that you want in a leader. Find in yourself faithfulness and love and courage. It's time for us to lead toward the world that we know that God intends for our own lives. There's one more thing about David's story that you ought to take note of. It's possible that the David story is not at all about what kind of great leader we should look for or what kind of great leader God looks for. It's about where we should look for our leaders. One certain purpose of the David story is that it says that those outside of circles of wealth and power are called by God to lead. It's not only possible for people outside of those circles to lead, it's divinely legitimated. That's where God looks for leaders. Read the David story, not as a longing of people looking for another great leader. Read it as a story that's meant to stoke the eternal fires of revolution from the outside or from the bottom. David is a model for that subversive claim made later again by Jesus, that indeed the last, the last of God's people shall be the first. That, I think, is what draws so many of us to this story about David. We look at David and we see ourselves, at least in part, very few of us actually come from circles of power. But David shows us something essential about ourselves, about you and I, that we, even in our insignificance, can be the ones who are chosen by God for something great. David, after all, was just a little boy, a shepherd, one not even brought out to, by his father to see the king's agent. It's not just that you and I can be representatives of God's working presence in human life. It's that that is God's pattern. That is God's preference. It is not hard, I think, to draw a connection between this aspect of David's story and the story of another great person of God who died this week. This man was one of nine children, not eight, but nine, born to sharecroppers in rural Alabama during the tyranny that we now call Jim Crow. As a teenager in the rural South, a black teenager, he chafed against the dehumanization of segregation. But his elders would tell him time and time again, that's just the way it is, John. Don't get yourself into trouble. But when he was 15, he says he heard this, preacher from Montgomery giving sermons on the radio, and he too was inspired to make a difference in people's lives and inspire them to bigger and better things. So he went to seminary in Nashville to become a preacher himself. There in a church basement in Nashville, he learned Gandhian practices of non-violent resistance. And there he 
would find himself sitting at lunch counters by the time he was 20 years old. In 1961, he joined up with the Freedom Riders to ride through the South and desegregate bus stations. He led the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He was the youngest speaker at the March on Washington. For 60 years, John Lewis was at the center of some of the most significant and most holy efforts to create beloved community in our own nation. From those lunch counters to the Freedom Rides, to the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, to the Voting Rights Act, to the halls of Congress, John Lewis was at the center of the narrative for divine justice in our country. Where did he come from, right? Where did God find John Lewis? I mean, I mean this in no disrespect, but when you, when you were in John Lewis's presence, which I was two or three times, you didn't immediately see someone you recognized as a great leader. Lewis said it about himself. He said, I've never been a person who attracts the limelight. I'm not a handsome guy. I'm not flamboyant. I'm not what you would call elegant. I'm short and stocky, he said. My skin is dark. I have never been the kind of guy who draws attention. What an understatement that is, right? Because there he was, stoic in the face of these brutal racist attacks. His wry smile looking back at us from his mugshots. His ebullient joy in, in the process of encouraging others over the years. His dedication to nonviolence and his unflagging belief in the rightness, not just the rightness of beloved community, but in its inevitability. God does find us. God finds us ordinary people, the insignificant ones, people from the outside, from the underside. God calls you and I. John Lewis, in an interview he gave in which he describes his own sense of this call, says, you know it when you feel it. You can feel God's call, he said. You have been caught up, John Lewis wrote. You have been led, not forced, but something caught up with you and it said, John Lewis, you too can be something. You too can make a contribution. You too can get in the way. But if you're going to do it, do it full and do it with love and peace and nonviolence. Do it with that element of faith. On this day, I want to say thank you, God, for raising up the leaders that your people need for the times in which we live and for the challenges that we face together. And I want to say thank you, God, especially for lifting up leaders that look and sound like ordinary and insignificant people. Thank you, God, for lifting up leaders that look and sound a lot like us.